Welcome to Day Beautiful. I'm Adam Vitcavage, and this podcast is a spinoff of my website, daybeautiful.net, where I interview the most exciting debut authors. Once a month, the podcast will feature a conversation with a debut author as they release their book into the world. However, for this special supersized episode, I want to give a treat and interview four of my favorite authors who released books in 2019. We have Kimberly King Parsons, who was longlisted for the National Book Award with her short story collection, Blacklight. Up next, you'll hear from Melissa Rivero, who won the New American Voices Award for her debut novel, The Affairs of the Falcons. Then we have John Englehart, who won the Zank Prize for his novel, Bloomland. The last conversation of the Supersize episode will be with Lauren Wilkinson, who wrote American Spy, which was nominated for numerous awards, but was also one of President Obama's favorite books of 2019. The conversations all last 15 to 25 minutes, so check the show notes to see exactly when each conversation starts. It's about 90 minutes worth of material for this special supersized debut episode of Day Beautiful, the podcast. So without further ado, I called up the National Book Award longlisted author Kimberly King Parsons to chat about her short story collection, Blacklight. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Um, I, I loved your book. I loved... I love the short stories. I love Blacklight. I loved everything about it. Can you tell listeners what your collection is about for those who haven't read it? Yes, thank you for talking with me. Um, Blacklight is, they're short stories that are set um, in mostly in Texas, which is where I'm from originally. Um, And they are my sort of like short version is that it's about weirdos and losers and teenagers and um, people who are maybe short on impulse control, um, perhaps making not the greatest decisions of their life. Um, but I find, I find all the characters to be pretty endearing despite their, um, bad decisions. Um, and yeah, and they're basically just characters who are struggling in some way. I, I really appreciated that you called them like weirdos and losers kind of, because that's what draws me in, into a, a book is especially the characters, um, what was your process for the whole collection as a whole with these stories? And we can dive into some in particular, but like when you came up with an idea for a story, is it character based? Is it, do you see a location? Do you, do you have a, a plot in mind? Um, so I never have a plot in mind. And I guess the way that I typically start is just, it's all voice driven. Um, and so for me, that's, tapping into a, um, you know, it could just be the friction between two words even, or something about the addiction and the way that someone's speaking. And usually it's a character who seems to be talking either directly to the reader or to another character. And then I sort of zoom out from the voice. So it's like, well, what are they saying? And who's in the room with them? And what state are they in? And where are they? And so it, it all for me starts with language and with, um, with voice. And then from there, everything kind of comes from that. And um, I don't ever have, I never know where the things are going. I, I always feel like I'm sort of feeling around in the dark as I'm writing. But to me, that's my favorite part is not knowing what's coming next. Um, and, but sometimes I'll be working towards like, I'll know exactly where I want what the last line to be. And then it's a matter of writing towards that last line or justifying it. Um, but often the ride is something that I'm, you know, I'm figuring it out too, as I'm doing it, it's not, it's not planned in advance. And through these, this, these stories, whose voice came easiest to you while you wrote this collection? The 
easiest one was actually the last story, Starlight, which is the only story in the collection that's third person. Um, and I made a conscious effort to write her, write the third person character, Jill, um, write her in third person because she's sort of out of her head in that, in that story. She's made some, some bad decisions and is, you know, doing all the drugs in a hotel room with a coworker. And I needed to see her from the outside so that we could, you know, she might be saying, I'm having so much fun, but I wanted the reader to be like, well, is she having fun? Like, is this really fun? Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to get a little bit of distance. But that story actually came out pretty quickly compared, I mean, some of them I started in like 2005 mm-hmm. and was working on through 2017. So that is not a quick turnaround. <laughs> um, but, but Starlight was one that I sort of, I started it um, on a train in the morning and it was like a sort of long train ride. It was supposed to be a short train ride, but something happened with the train. And I ended up finishing it really quickly. And so then I spent some time revising it. But the arc of the story, which is basically just them in that hotel room for a work day, um, kind of came out pretty quickly. And so that, that one was definitely the easiest to tell. Um, and I think I'd been sort of thinking about it for a very long time before I, before I had started writing it. But yeah. And with that story, that's a story I feel that the press or the media, like whenever someone's describing your book, they always reference that story. Um, and that's interesting. It was one of the easiest for you to write. Yeah, it was the easiest. It was the last one. And it was also, that's been the most, I'm surprised that people seem to like that story in a way that I almost felt like it was too dark. I almost thought about not including it actually, because it was the only third person story. And it, I, I just wasn't sure for a while if that was something anyone would want to, because really from a plot perspective, you're like, okay, so they're just, they're just in a room doing, doing drugs all day. Like there's not really much that happens, you know, uh, on the, on the page in terms of, you know, movement. And actually those characters sort of, you know, people say, oh, the characters should change over the course of a story or there should be some, you know, huge event that happens. And I'm like, nope, <laughs> they kind of walked into that room and they're maybe going to walk out in the same way. Um, but I but I'm, I'm surprised that people liked it. I'm happy that they do, because I, I like I like it like it checks all of my boxes in terms of what I like to read about. But um, but yeah, and also I was happy just that the last thing that I wrote wasn't, you know, you never want to hear like, oh, the things you wrote a long time ago were better. <laughs> so it's nice to know that the but the last one still hit for people as well. And then that that story that you mentioned was from that took over almost a decade or over a decade was would you consider that the hardest or did it just take a while to perfect? Yeah, it was it was the story Foxes. And it it, it just um, it wasn't like it, it was finished. It had it was finished. It just was missing this whole other layer that I kind of put in at the very end. And I um, luckily didn't get it published anywhere. I mean, I sent it out, but it, nobody picked it up before. And then it ended up working out because it ended up in the Paris Review. But for a long time, I was just I, it, something about it didn't feel right. And I wasn't quite sure why it was messed up. And it took me sort of um, just trusting this like gut feeling that something was off about it to, to really work on it up to the very end. I mean, literally like the day before my, my final revisions were due, I kind of solved it um, in a, an Airbnb in Austin. And that one, I, you know, it's not, it's not like I was con- constantly working on it from 2005 to then, but it was just sort of, it was in there always in the background as something that I felt was screwed up that I needed to fix, but I just didn't have any, I think I had to write the rest of the book first Mm -hmm. to figure out how, like how to solve that. And, and you mentioned uh, that you, you no longer live in Texas. You, you moved away. Um, 
but all these stories do take place in Texas. Were you writing the majority of these while in Texas, or had you moved and no? Were... I was actually never. Re- I I moved. I left Texas um, to go do my MFA in New York, and I uh, I didn't even want to write about Texas. I thought I I was uh, I never intended to write about Texas, but I guess it sort of started to seep into all these stories. And then, um, I haven't been back, you know, I, I left 15 years ago and I haven't, I mean, I've, I go back all the time cause my family's still there, but I haven't lived there again. I lived in New York for 13 years and then moved to Portland, Oregon, um, fairly recently. So, um, but yeah, it wasn't my intention to write there. I just, I started to realize, Oh my, this is actually set in my grandmother's house, or this is the house where I grew up in Lubbock, or these are the, these are the kids from the neighborhood where I lived. And so it sort of just organically became about Texas. But then actually my agent was the one who said, Hey, some of these stories don't have a location. Like aren't those in Texas too? And I was like, well, yeah, but shouldn't we make it very, like, I I don't know the idea of making them admitting that they were all set in Texas at first seemed like a negative thing. But then I realized that people actually like that sort of specificity. I was worried that like, that's my experience and that maybe it should just be like a small town and don't say that it's in Texas. But then I think actually people, um, people identify with it. And also Texas has its own mythos, you know, it's kind of like unlike any other state. So. Yeah, that, that was really interesting. My only experiences with Texas are, I moved across the country like three times as a, like in my teens with my parents and mm-hmm. it just seemed endless, like driving along yeah. the 10 or it just was. And then I've been to South by Southwest, which is a different world. It's not even really Texas. It's its own. Right. It's its own yeah. week long thing. <laughs> and Austin is also like a weird little blue oasis in mm-hmm. this very red state. And um, yeah, it's it's a it's such a huge, just vast, vast personalities and and um so many differences just from like you know it takes you a day to drive out of there to go anywhere i spent most of my time uh, i lived in dallas for a long time but just to get anywhere you're like we're gonna be in the car for so long it's just huge and i i feel like it's still it's funny because this novel that i'm writing now uh the character is in new york but she goes back home to texas to deal with something and it's like i can't i spent a lot of time wanting to leave texas and now it's like i can't stop writing about it <laughs> Yeah, what about what about Texas draws you back specifically? Is it that is it nostalgia or is it something else? I think it's I think it's that it's such it's so steeped in voice. If voice is my favorite thing and just the sort of strange, I mean my my parents and the way that they speak to each other and the way that my extended family like both in the twang and the accent but also just the colloquialisms and the sort of viewpoint of the world and this weird you know, my, a lot of people in my family would be perfectly happy with Texas being its own, like seceding and being its own country, you know? And like, there's, there's a sort of attitude um, and a almost like a brash swagger associated with that state in general. Um, I feel like a lot of my characters are like that. They're sort of scrappy and resilient, even if they're really wrongheaded about things. Um, So I, I don't know. I'm also just calling back to the voices of my childhood quite a bit, you know, just, that's the most familiar it's the easy it's the easiest um to to like access you know so i just like there it is um but yeah i i think i think it's it's hard for me to i when i was living in texas i wanted to leave a lot and then now i'm it's just interesting that my fiction still just goes back all the time and when you're working on a character's voice and that's what's drawn to you 
I guess this is a really broad question, but how do you know the voice is right once you start writing? It's, it sounds totally, it's just gut. It's just mm. a gut feeling. It's, I can't explain it any other way. And so much of what I do feels like it's just knowing that something feels right in one way or another. And so much of writing is just, you know, these weird, bizarre, like logic problems that you, you sort of set out the logic of a world and then you follow it through. But I feel like I, I definitely know when it's right for me, when it's right for my intention, for my intended purpose. And so if I'm talking about starting from one true line, which is how I do it, you know, I, I always start at the beginning, like I'm not writing scenes or sections, I'm starting from line one, and everything is sort of clicking into place. And the great thing about that is that you can just look backwards to the line that you just wrote to determine how to move forward. And so, but that first line is the, is the originating line that has to come from, you know, from nowhere. And that line is so gut, it's just so gut driven. I just know exactly that it's right. And I also always know that last line is right, whatever that means for me to be right. Um, but, and if it's wrong, if something's off, like I know that too, in the same way that that story Foxes was bothering me for all those years, like I can't explain it. And somebody else might look at it and say, no, this story's fine or whatever. But I'm like, there's just a feeling that I have. Um, and so, so much of it is almost intuitive or it feels, it feels magic in a way. It sounds crazy, but. <laughs> <laughs> no, that makes sense. And, and, and this, this collection does have a pretty wide variety of, of voices. Like you said, it ends with uh, a drug infused couple uh, and then there's also children narrators where where did that how did you know those voices were right for this collection i think it's just figuring out who has it's about urgency and who has a reason to be telling the story since so much of it is first person present tense almost direct address breaking that wall and speaking directly to the reader it's just these characters who are like let me tell you something i have to tell you what's going on with me and some of, sometimes it's children who are trying to make sense of the chaos of their family life, or sometimes it's, you know, uh, in the story into the fold, it's these sort of mean girls in a boarding school who are, have their own strictures and rules and um, their own, they agree about how to operate in their particular society. And then there's an outsider who's explaining why this is so difficult for them to sort of assimilate into. And I feel like that's what it is. A lot of times it's coming from the voice that is, that's not understanding things as well as the voices around it. And so, I don't know, I think that children and adults are all sort of doing the same thing. We're all playing games in different ways. The the couple who's doing drugs in a hotel room all weekend is not, or all day is not that different than, you know, the kids who are outside throwing bricks at each other. <laughs> like it's all just game playing and it's all escapism. Mm-hmm. So they're kind of tapping into the same, to the same type of things. Well, whatever you, whatever gut feeling you have when it comes to finding voices, it clearly works because your book, I mean, it's one of my favorites. Uh, I've told you that I love it. And then, Thank you. and then it also was long listed for the national book award, which is no joke. Um, my friends who don't yeah. really read a lot, I'm like, it's the Oscars for books. Like it's, it's a huge yeah. deal. Um, what was that? Like once you found out, what was your morning like uh, when you found out you were part of the, the 10 best uh fiction of the year it was a crazy feeling because i had just gotten home from book tour the day before 
Um, and so I had been gone from like August 13th until I guess they announced this on September 18th, 17th, something like that. So I'd been gone almost a, a month. And then I came home and was feeling that sort of like back to real life, do my laundry, like get my kids to school feeling. And then, you know, literally like dropped off my kids and saw that I had all these text messages and was just like, what? Oh no, something happened in New York because there's all my friends in New York. And I was like, something terrible has happened because they're just like expletives. And I was like, what's happening? And then I realized like, oh, these are good. This is a good thing. Um, and I was just shocked, honestly, like I, it was not even on my radar or something to consider, um, to check, you know, I wasn't like, I lot some of my friends were like, Oh, I'd been refreshing it for two days or whatever to see when they were going to announce it. I just, it hadn't occurred to me. And I was also still just so much in the world of the actual book tour itself. Um, but it was it's wonderful and so exciting. And also just, you know, short stories don't often get that kind of, I was very happy to see that my friend Kali was mm -hmm. also listed for Sabrina and Karina and, you know, short stories sometimes don't get regarded in the same way as actually debut short story collection. So I was just very happy and um, happy and surprised. And also my friend Julia Phillips's book was a debut. It's so nice to see debut authors on that list um, and Definitely. surprising, you know, um, but it's been great. And also it's just, there's a whole, whole world of opportunity that the national book foundation has a whole series of programs that go into like underserved places mm -hmm. and just wonderful to be a part of it. Um, and it also just, you know, this whole life of writing is like, I just want to be able to keep doing this. What can I, what, what do I need to do to be able to justify the life that I really want to live, which is just writing these books. And so anything that can lend, you know, credibility to that is, mm -hmm. is great. So I'm really, really happy. Yeah, I definitely, I love that the National Book Awards, they, that outreach, and I watched, I streamed it live because I'm that type of, like, book nerd. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I just love how they, you know, they, they, they were poking fun at, oh, just keep, the, you gotta donate. And I feel like not, I got, not many people know that they have this outreach program that helps yeah. underserved communities get books into hands of people. Exactly. It's wonderful. It's wonderful to be a part of it. And it's also there. They work so hard. And I believe that the whole staff of the National Book Foundation is nine people and they're all phenomenal. And I'm just it's amazing that it's like this this huge machine that they're running. And but it's yeah, they do so much good work and it's so cool to be a part of it. And also, um, you know, you you kind of you get to say this forever. You get to say that your book was long listed for something, and it's you know to to certain people, you know, it's funny because some of my my family they're not really readers, and they were like, "Is that good?" <laughs> like, yeah. But it's nice. That's also just a lot of people who I'm seeing like some reviews from people who are like, "Oh, I never read short story collections, but I read this because it was long listed." So it's just getting the book into more hands, which is always a good thing. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Like people don't really read short story collections, or um, the general public might not. Is and I actually run yeah. a, I, I run a book club here in Phoenix um, where we read a novel and a short story collection connected by a theme. And so many people oh, are like, cool. they're like, I haven't read a short story collection ever or in years. And it's so interesting because they are on the same level as novels. They're not lesser, which some people might, for some reason, think No. That. Yeah. And actually, I love, I love short story. I've always loved stories the most. Um, just because, 
So if you're reading a collection, there's 12 stories, like they have to do 12 beginnings, 12 middles, 12 ends, you know, all these different characters, all these different voices, like in some ways, it's, it's harder than writing, you know, sitting with one voice and writing it through. And um, I mean, I'm writing a novel now, which feels impossible. So I'm not going to say it's harder or easier. But, um, but just, yeah, I, I love the intensity and compression of the language and short stories, you don't have as much space to um, have these sort of saggy parts that sometimes happen in novels where you're just moving characters around or putting them in and out of cars, you know, in a short story, you're like jumping, you're doing a space break and jumping right into the next scene because you're, because time is so important. But I also love the feeling of being jerked around from one story to the next, to the next and hearing a bunch of different voices over a short period of time, which I think is what some people don't like. Some people really love to sit with one voice and, you know, read it for two weeks and sort of be in a world for that length of time, which I understand as well. Um, but yeah, I've always loved stories above all other forms, um, personally. And then you mentioned Sabrina and Karina, which was shortlisted, and that's a debut story collection. What other story collections, you know, throughout time or that came out last year, st- what story collections do you absolutely love? I really loved this book called Here Is What You Do by Chris Dennis, which is a lot of it's he has such a great knack at voices as well like but like he's just incredibly has an incredible range um but there's a, a lot of the stories are queer a lot of the stories are one of them is um like told from the perspective of Coretta Scott King Martin Luther King's uh, junior's wife um like just willing to take on all of these different voices in a way that I find really admirable and compelling um and he is, he's, that book is so good. It's really, really good. It was out from Soho Press this year. Um, and then there are certain short story collections that I go back to all the time, like Jesus' Son by Dennis Johnson and um, Amy Hempel's Reasons to Live and um, Laurie Moore's Self-Help. And, you know, there's a lot of different um, different books that I go back to a lot for that. But also uh, another short story collection was um, Large Animals by Jess Arndt. Um, which came out, I think that's two years old now, but I love that book as well. I have the uh, Chris's book. I haven't read it yet, though. I just get so, you know, there's so many books out there. So now I'm I'm bumping it up to my top of my list to finally get yeah. to. Yeah, it's great. It's also like there's so, there's the stories are so vastly different from one to the next. So um, it's funny because my favorite books, whenever I read reviews are the people who like some, like everybody has a different story that they really love. And, um, it doesn't seem like there's one story that's getting all the attention. It's more like people are really gravitating towards different, different ones. But I also like how divisive, um, you know, a lot of people are, people have trouble with the fact that he's embodying all these different voices, which I find immediately appealing, like someone who's willing to, to go to all those different places. Um, so yeah, I don't know. The, I the I think it's called This Is a Galaxy is a story that I don't know. I would say start with that one. It's so so good. But um, there's so many good stories in there for sure. And and are there any other books, novels, essay collections that you read recently or that might be coming out that you you can't wait for the public to read? Yeah, um, the memoir A Year Without a Name by Cyrus Grace Dunham, which I think came out last month. It's so good. I read it on an airplane just in I I met uh, them in Austin and like read it on the way home. And it was so I was just sobbing by the end of it. It's so beautiful. And so um, 
I, you know, the sentences themselves are gorgeous, but then the story itself is just so beautifully told. Um, and then I have been reading a couple of things in manuscript. Um, there's a book called Boys of Alabama by Genevieve Hudson, um, which is so great and talking about like checking all my boxes. It's about, you know, a queer boy from Germany moves to Alabama and falls in falls in love with a goth kid <laughs> and they're teenagers. I'm like, this is great. Like this is perfect. Um and Genevieve is so good. I loved her short story collection, um, which came out last year and so I was so excited to read her novel. Um there's also a novel called Godshot by Chelsea Beaker, which is uh, just gorgeous. And it's about uh, this sort of pastor who comes to this sort of poor town in California and starts this new religion uh, and asks all of the, everyone to do these different assignments for him. And, uh, and it's also just about motherhood and mother love. And those sentences are just, I felt like I was running out of ink, underlining all the beautiful sentences in that book. Um, and then also their memoir called writing with the ghost by Justin Taylor, um, who has written a bunch of fiction before, um, he wrote a short story collection called everything here is the best thing ever, which was a, a while back. Feels like it's been a while since that book came out, but um, and then he's written a couple of novels in between, and then now this is a memoir that is coming out um, next year, which I'm excited about as well. I will have to say, God shot. I have read it, and it is exquisite, and it's just so unexpected. Oh. I had no like, I had no expectations going in other than the covers, amazing, <laughs> and uh, yes, it like is just the glitter, and uh, yeah, it is definitely one of my. Uh, like favorite books I think is coming out that I've read so far in 2020. Right. Yeah. It's so, so good. good. I can't wait it's for people so to read good. it. Yeah. Yeah. It's so great. And I, I feel like it's also one of those books that is both, it's so literary and at the sentence level, it's doing such incredible work, but then also that plot is just unstoppable and propulsive in a way that I feel like will reach a lot of readers. You know, it's so good. Yeah, definitely. I think it's, it's like, yeah, it's just so good. I, I have no words for it. I'm I'm stumbling over words trying to describe it. That's how it's <laughs> such a good book. I'm actually blurbing it right now, and I feel the same way. I'm like, how do I how do I say how beautiful this is? Yeah, it's so yeah. so good. Well, I can't wait for people to read that book. I hope more people go back and read Blacklight. And I won't bug you about your novel because I don't want to jinx anything. And I because authors <laughs> authors are always like, I'm not going to talk about it, so I'm not even going to ask. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well. Um, yeah, I'm just. Thank you so much for talking with yeah. me. I'm just so happy that that Blacklight has um, has meant as much as it has to people. And I really appreciate you taking the time to, to talk with me. Thank you so much to Kimberly King Parsons for taking the time to talk to me on my first ever interview for Day Beautiful, the podcast. You can find her on Twitter at KKingParsons, which I'll link in the show notes. And I'll do that for every author I interview. Up next is Melissa Rivero talking about her immigration novel, The Affairs of the Falcons. Thank you so much, Melissa, for taking the time to talk to me today. Um, I hope everything's been well in your debut year. How have things been going? Uh, yeah, thank you for having me. It's been a bit of a um, I'm sure I, uh, any debut author will tell you the same. You sort of don't know what to expect um, that first year. Uh, and there's so much that you learn through the publishing process and through actually having your book out in the world. Um, it's it's just, 
it can be a little daunting and scary, but it's, it's also a lot of fun. You meet a lot of really great people along the way. And your book came out about eight months ago, uh, Affairs of the Falcons. For those who haven't read it or might not know what it's about, can you kind of give us a synopsis of, of what your book is? Yeah, so the book is about uh, an undocumented Peruvian woman in New York City uh, in the 1990s. Um, she is a mother of two, um, and she is trying to do what she can to keep her family here in the States. When I first talked to you for Day Beautiful, we talked about like uh, your family's experience, and I kind of want to dive into that just a little bit, um, because this your Affairs of the Falcons takes place in the 90s, and which would kind of coincide with your family's experience. How did um, you pull that experience into this book? You know, I drew inspiration from uh, something that happened to my mom when she first immigrated to this country. So we came over in the early 80s. Um, the novel takes place in the 90s. Um, and so I, I tried to, I, I had to take place in the New York City that I was that I could still remember and that was familiar to me um but yeah it was it I I from her from one incident that happened to her I sort of drew the character the protagonist Anna um and quite frankly from my own experience uh you know when I started writing the book I didn't have children and then by the end of it uh, I had two and so I used you know, that experience of, of motherhood to sort of help inform the character was feeling, um, her actions. Um, and I think it made for, at least for me as a writer, like a more more compassionate towards my protagonist um, and certainly helped me empathize with her more. But yeah, but, it, but, the, 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 but the original, the thrust of the, of the novel really came from this experience that my mother had when she was, uh, you know, when she had newly immigrated to this country. Oh my god, I'm sorry if you hear my children screaming in the back. No, it's totally fine. It makes for a better podcast, trust me. Uh, I've, I've, I've heard worse of the background. You have kids, I understand. So you kinda... I do, I have, yeah. yeah. Like, my mom is watching. Funny enough, my mother is watching the two of them in the room next door. Oh, that's perfect. Like, no, let them play. I, I keep referencing this interview we did eight months ago. You talked about, like, growing up yeah. as an other and, like, representation, um, like, of books you read growing up that may or may not have been around. Um, I guess let's go back then. What books growing up, up until now, did you read that were, that you saw yourself in, that you actually saw your rep you, you represented in? Or was there uh, even any? Yeah, you know, yeah, I don't think there were any. Um, I don't think that there were. I think that, there, I mean, there's certainly some books that uh, touch on, you know, otherness, and uh, especially when it comes from the perspective of, 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 of immigrants and and um, and of a young person, um, you know, half of Mango Street sort of pops up, uh, and, and but it's it's sort of it's for me at least I didn't see myself necessarily in some in in, in literature um, primarily because you know there, it's not like we have a large Peruvian immigrant Peruvian community here in the United States. Um, certainly, it's not as large as other immigrant communities. Um, and so that experience, I didn't necessarily see it captured in literature. Um, you know, I, there were certainly books that influenced me um, growing up. Um, Night by Ellie Wiesel, which is, you know, um, was a book that, um, that impacted me as a teenager. Um, 
just because it was sort of like my first, the first time that I ever really saw loss and, uh, and uh, this, this growth that sort of um, happens to this character under very, very sad circumstances. Um, but, um, but, but that, that one really influenced me. Bless Me Ultima was another one. To be quite honest, I felt like I was really more, um, I, I, I kind of saw myself more, or I wish I had in many ways some of the superpowers of the mutants that I saw in comic books. So I grew up reading a lot of comic books um, because I thought that that would sort of, I did fantasize in some ways as a kid growing up about being invincible, which I think is something that um, if you're an immigrant and if you're undocumented in this country, you sort of, as a child especially, like, you know, it, it, it can help you get through some of the fear that comes along with that experience. And growing up, did, with that invincibility that you sought, did you always have like a, a, I guess this is a dumb question, but did you always have this fear looming over you or did you ever feel or when did you feel safe I guess yeah I don't think I've ever actually felt safe um you know growing up I was keenly aware of the fact that my my parents could be that parents and I could be separated from my brothers mm-hmm. that was something that was very I was very much aware of um at six seven eight years old I, I knew that and I could still remember my interview with immigration when we were trying to uh, get a green card, a temporary green card, and they asked me, I was probably eight years old at the time, and I remember being in a room and being asked if my parents had ever taken me on a plane. Out, you know, and, and they, were trying to, they, were, they were trying to determine if we had ever left the country to sort of deny us uh, residency. So, 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 yeah, so those were, so I don't know if I ever felt uh, necessarily safe. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if, I, yeah, I, I, that's an interesting question because I don't think I actually ever have. Even now, I mean, you know, I'm I'm an adult and I'm a U.S. citizen, mm-hmm. but in in the environment that we're living in, I mean, are any of us really truly safe? I don't know. Um, I I don't think so. As sad as that might sound. Yeah, it feels like, and I, I talk about this with other people too. I I make a white. Polish I mean I mean I'm American but like my grandparents were Polish mm-hmm. and I've never even thought about not feeling safe and the older I get mm. especially now uh, since 2016 it just feels like uh, the country has regressed almost in many ways but then I also think maybe it was always like this and people were just afraid uh, other the oppressors were almost not afraid but less vocal about it but now it feels like there's an outlet for oppression like there never has been before, but again, that could just be my perspective as like a thirty-year-old white kid from the suburbs. Yeah, I think um, I think that in a, this, uh, yeah, I mean, there's certainly that fear for a lot of people who are immigrants of deportation, of having their sort of status uh, taken away from them in some way, uh, of leaving and not being allowed in the country for whatever reason. Um, but now there's this also this like added fear of, you know you can't go to a, a mall or a movie theater or whatever, mm-hmm. a, a club or wherever, someplace and, and, and not be afraid of being, of being targeted in some way. Um, so, so there's certainly that, um, which definitely makes me feel unsafe, but I felt unsafe. You know, I mean, I grew up here in New York and nine uh, eleven certainly impacted me. Like I, you know, my, my instinct now, I talked to my husband about this the other day, like my instinct now is whenever I see, whenever I sense danger, is to just run. Um, 
and I think that it's been uh, uh, conditioned. I've been conditioned to that. Now, I don't think it's. I don't know if if nine eleven hadn't happened. I don't know if my instinct would be to run or to to run away from danger or to run into it in order to help to help others potentially or to you know like I think about what what happened in London. Um, you know, a few days ago, you know, would, would, would we run into into that danger to sort of try to stop it or would the instinct be to run away from it? And I think given the history that at least what I've experienced, I think my instinct would be to run away from it because I'm so, I, I that's just what I've been conditioned to do now, I feel like. Like if, there, you know, a plane goes into a, 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 a building, you run away from it. There's you know, um, there's some sort of explosion. You run away from it. People, you know, like there's any sort of sound. You just run away from it. And that's sort of like now what I've been conditioned to, to, to do. Same thing, you know, my mother, I mean, when, when you, when, when I think back, you know, growing up when there were these raids at factories that had my mother or her friends experienced, that instinct is to run, run away from it, you know? Um, so, I mean, that's all to say, I, yeah, I, I, I don't think I have ever felt safe. Um, I don't, think that really anyone should feel safe, um, unfortunately, given how vocal some people are and um, how people who should be in, who are in leadership positions don't take a very strong stance against what some of the, some of the garbage that these people are, 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 are able to say and, and discuss in, in, in public and, and whatnot. You know, it's very venomous and no one's actually stopping it. No one's actually, you know, we don't have anyone, I don't think, who's actually saying no. Yeah. You know, those are not good people. Those are really bad. They're really bad people, you know. Um, sure. Anyway, sorry. I could no, I, 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 and I'm with you. <laughs> and like, as you're talking, I'm thinking of like, what is there to do? Like, there's so much to do. And yeah, like you said, there's no one person or group stepping up to intervene and, and make things right. It's more like everyone's almost on the back foot trying to see what everyone else will do in the, in the current climate. Yeah. Um, are, like, exactly. are there places or like physically or metaphorically that you go to feel safe that you find refuge in? You know, that's funny. I, it's funny you say that because I have been talking to my husband about how I wanted to go back to dance. Um, and yes, I sometimes I feel like I have, you know, I'm, I'm healthy and I feel like I do find safety in, um, in a dance class as, as strange as that might sound. Um, but I feel safe um, in an environment where um I feel like I can sort of be in my body for a little bit and where other people are sort of seeking uh, a bit of refuge from their regular life by being in their body and being and listening to music and being in community. So I think that that's a place where I tend to feel, I don't know if safe is the right word, but certainly free. Um, uh, I feel safe, um, to explore at my desk. Um, it's funny because like I, I, I tend to write whenever I can and you know, on my commute to work or, you know, um, during my lunch break. Um, but I feel most at home at like at my desk at home. Like I feel like here's where I have permission 
um, to be who I am and say what I want to say without really anyone telling me that I can't, you know, say that or I can't do that. Um, and and here I do feel safe. Uh, you know, I live in a in a in a walk up in Brooklyn. My landlord is downstairs. I you know his 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 niece is is a neighbor of mine, and so I sort of feel safe being here. Mm. It feels very much like a home should feel like for me. And, and when you're writing, are you more aware, or do you tune out the noise of the world and and what you know? oppressors are shouting from the top of their lungs how do you how do you feel when you're writing? i i i do try to shut that down mm. um i i try not to let that seep too much into what i get on the page whether or not it ends up being there um but i don't go into it with like with the con with like con like being conscious of the fact that i'm okay i'm going to write about this you know this is going to be my response to what's happening right now in the world. I don't go into it with that in mind. Um, it certainly might come out, but it's not what I, it's, when I sit down, it's not the first and the first thing that, that is sort of dry. It's not, it's not what's driving the narrative. It's not what's mm. driving whatever I end up putting on the page. I, I don't want to ask what you're currently working on, but in, in, in the larger scope of things, what interests you looking ahead in the future? So your first book looked in the past is the next book looking in the past. I, I'm interested very much in loss um, and how we, how we handle loss, how we move on from it. Um, I'm interested in women in the workplace um, and, how, and how that is complicated by, you know, if you're, if you're a woman of color or, you know, if you're... Um, have other identities um, besides just, you know, being a woman or whatever, um, how that, how that, how that impacts how one functions within the workplace and whether or not anyone can really succeed because we're so wrapped up in like putting in insane amount of hours and being, and, and the bureaucracy that sort of comes along with that. Um, so I'm interested in sort of undo, undoing the patriarchy, I guess, in some ways. Um, I'm interested in that. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I feel like I, I'm sort of drawn to a lot of the same things. Um, motherhood, parenting, family, um, the, the family dynamics. Um, and I do feel like I, I, I tend to explore that um, from from a, from from my own personal perspective. In other words, like I explore that those themes, but coming from a place of, you know, of my identity, a Peruvian woman, an immigrant, um, you know, a thirty-something-year-old mom, and so you know, who grew up in in Brooklyn, so I, or in you know, New York City. So I sort of see it from from that perspective, um, or at least I, I try to explore those themes coming from that. Um, identity and you know I it's, it's what feels natural and it's what feels true um, granted I'm writing fiction yeah, but yeah. Um, it, it, it feels like a place that's more um, comfortable for me um, I would love to write about I don't know like a fantasy novel <laughs> um, 
and maybe one day, yeah. but right now these are the sort of the themes that I really want to delve into. And and those themes that you are interested in writing, is that primarily what you read when you have a chance or what books have interested you recently? Oh yeah, no. I mean, I read I read everything. Mm. Um right now I'm reading like a a, a period romance novel. Um uh, called bringing down the duke which is a lot of fun i that um, that comes off of yeah and i i picked that up after reading madeline stevens's uh devotion um and like i have a couple of other books on my on my list um for what i'm gonna read next um among them is uh will schwalby's book which i just picked up this afternoon um and What's another one? I'm just looking at my pile right now. I haven't. I have to finish the Tenth Girl by Sarah Faring, which I started, and then it just I couldn't go to sleep. Which I, I read because I like to sort of ease me into sleeping, but this is keeping me up, but not in a. I mean, it's good, but like yeah. I, I kind of I needed to sleep, <laughs> so I was like, this is like a book that I need to read like in the morning or like on my. Computer. Yeah, to jolt you awake. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and like I and uh, I, I'm someone that like if I can somehow get myself to sleep, that'd be great. Otherwise, I'm up mm-hmm. for hours. I feel you um, yeah. when I shouldn't be. Yeah. And um, um, but like, but looking, but looking into 2020, though, there are like a lot of books that I I'm hoping to maybe get my hands on before they're actually out on shelves. Um, Macy Card. Her book, These Ghosts Are Family, I think it's coming out in March. March, yeah, yeah. I, ju- I, yeah. I just finished reading it um, over Thanksgiving weekend, and it is oh, it is terrific. Cool. Yeah, I'm glad I got my hands on a copy. I, I highly recommend trying to get a, your hands on one as quickly as possible. It's yeah, cool. yeah. I think I yes. I'm. I think I might. I I have I have her contact info, so maybe I'll reach out <laughs> and I'll see if I can get if I can get a copy of that. Um, and then Andy Bart's um, her second book, uh, The Herd, is coming out. I think also around the same time. So she wrote The Lost Night, which came out this year. Um, and the herd is about um, a murder that takes place in an all women's co-working space. So I think that would be like a fun, a fun read. And then um, Y.A. Two Moore's memoir, uh, The Dragons, The Giants, and The Women. Um, that's coming out, I think, in May. Um, but it's basically like her experience as a kid growing up in Liberia during their civil war. Um, yeah, that would be definitely. She did work. Yeah, I loved her debut novel, and uh, I had mm-hmm. I had a, good, a chance to meet her when she was here in Phoenix, and I um, I didn't oh, know that cool. memoir was coming out, so I'm very excited, definitely. Yeah, yeah, I saw um, I saw the cover for it, and it's so beautiful. So yeah, so I'm really excited about about that one. Thanks again to Melissa Rivero for coming on to chat with me about her book, The Affairs of the Falcons. You can follow her on Twitter at Melissa underscore Rivero. Again, that'll be linked in the show notes. Up next is John Englehart, whose novel Bloomland won the Dezank Prize. Uh, thanks, John, for taking the time to talk to me. Uh, how's everything going on your end? Oh, it's going great. Yeah. Um, you know, the book is uh, came out, you know, two and a half months ago, so it's been it's been wild, but it's been a largely positive experience. So, yeah, things are things are pretty good. That's good. And for people who haven't read Bloomland yet or may not have come across it, uh, what is the synopsis you give people 
uh, for what Bloomland is? Yeah, so um, it's an examination of a few things. I think higher education, grief, and uh, male socialization uh, through the prism of a mass shooting that takes place at a fictional Southern college. Um, so it's a multi-perspective novel, so it looks at three characters. Um, one is a student survivor. Another is an uh, adjunct professor whose wife was killed in the shooting. And then another is um, the shooter himself. Um, and it looks at those characters over a 20 year span, um, uh, 10 years before, during and after the shooting. Um, so my hope with the book is trying to like get outside the kind of traditional narratives of mass shootings and kind of look at the, the before and also the aftermath in a kind of more nuanced way than I guess we're used to seeing in this kind of cycle of short-lived outrage. Um, it's also told in um, alternating second-person chapters with a kind of discrete first-person consciousness at the novel's core that speaks to each character in the form of you. Um, so that's kind of like a, when, once you pick up the book, it becomes kind of immediately apparent, kind of sticks out to readers too. So, yeah. It was published on a smaller press called Zank, which uh, runs a yearly prize that if you win, it publishes. And that's how you, you came to be published with them. Is that correct? Yeah, and I guess, which is really interesting to me. So I guess just kind of walk through how you you know found the publisher and and what that that first year was like for you getting it published. Yeah. Um, so I I think from the beginning, while I was writing even and after finishing the book, I kind of suspected if I was lucky enough to have it be picked up by anyone that it might be a smaller independent press. I think. Um, if only just for the reason that most of the books that I read and kind of admire, I think, come out from independent presses like Dezank, I think, like Coffeehouse Press, um, $2 Radio, um, those kind of indie presses. I think I read a lot of books from and admire, and I think, or I was at least hoping that, that my book kind of like um, fell into that category, um, I think, with the kind of style in which it's written. So um, I, when I finished it and um, 2017, I sent it out to, to, you know, those particular presses, book contests or open reading periods. Um, at the same time, I was trying to find an agent as well. Um, and so I was at it, at the kind of submission game for about a year and a half. Um, at which point, um, I won the design prize in, in November of, of 2018. So, um, I was, and I realized looking back that I was, you know, looking for a publisher for a year and a half isn't actually that long at all. But at the end of it, I felt kind of like perhaps near the end, um, I, was, I was kind of like revising a lot too as I was submitting. So the earlier drafts I sent out at the beginning were, were really different from the manuscript that Dezank got, for example. So, um, but yeah, by the time I won the prize, I was, um, starting to kind of like reconsider um, whether the novel would even get out there in the world. So um, it was very exciting, and I was very happy it landed at Dezank, obviously, too. So This was all done without an agent, then, you said? This was just all you just doing open submissions and trying to find the perfect indie press? Yes. Yeah, so I'm currently unagented. Um, I, like I said, I was looking for an agent, and I corresponded with a lot of agents, a lot of them got back to me and, and had 
kind of positive comments, but in the end, um, kind of for one reason or another, felt that they couldn't sell the book or take on the project. So um, winning the prize was, um, yeah, something I I didn't need an agent for and, and still don't, I guess. I don't know, but yeah. <laughs> And then, and then once once you won the prize, what was that uh, relationship like with the publisher? Yeah, so uh, being a, a nonprofit indie press, I mean, like Dzenk has been around for a while, and they have like I think a really great platform and great vision. Um, but it, it, you know, they are kind of like a, you know working with a small staff, and and so it was a very kind of I guess I would say collaborative process working with them. Um, I worked really closely with with Michelle Daughter, the editor in chief there, um, on kind of everything. You know, on on edits, uh, I was able to kind of like say my piece about you know the book cover design, which I was really happy with. Um, we wrote the um, jacket copy together, like kind of all that, like the publicity stuff. All um, everything that we did was like kind of a very collaborative process. Um, so, and, and for my first book coming out, um, I really kind of like appreciated that actually, um, it was a lot of work, but, um, you know, to kind of have my hand in it and to know what was going on was kind of like really kind of reassuring and, and kind of rewarding. So, um, it's been a wild year because, I mean, I won the prize, uh, in November of 2018 and the book came out, uh, less than a year after that. So it was, it was kind of a lot (laughs) to, to have happen in a year. Um, it was crazy, but, but yeah, it was good. That's awesome. You had a a, a good whirlwind of a year. Um, you also was, was part of winning the prize that you would judge the next year or did that just kind of fall into place that you judged the 2020 prize, I believe then, or was it 20? Yeah. 2020 then. Yeah. I think I'm not sure that it's like, uh, set in stone kind of idea that Dzenk has, but I think it's it's kind of the expectation that the the winner um, is one of the judges of the the following year's prize. Yeah. And and what was that like for you um, coming from you know someone who you know was unpublished and then won a prize and got a lot of acclaim? I mean, Bloomland. I feel like anybody who's read it really loved it. Um, what was that like going into now? You were kind of deciding else someone else's like future almost. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I've, I've um, done editing for literary magazines before. And so I'm kind of familiar with, with that process of just kind of, you know, like reading um, through a pile and kind of like feeling um, really responsible for what you, um, what, you know, narratives you choose to put out, out there in the world. Um, so, I mean, I, I um, it was, but also it was really fun. I mean, like I, you know, um, the editors pushed off the manuscripts to us, um, the finalists and, and, uh, it was just a, a, it was a kind of like a crazy range um, of novels too. Um, so in that way, it was really kind of hard to compare <laughs> um, like which ones we should publish because they were all really good. Uh, in the end, the, the one that we chose though, um, Call It Horses by Jesse Van um, Erden, um, really kind of stood out to me as a, as a Dezank novel, I guess you could say. Um, um, it's really lyric and it's kind of maximalist um, and it follows like three women who are kind of like fleeing their lives. One of them is like terminally ill. Um, the other two are kind of fleeing their husbands, I guess you would say. Um, and they kind of get into this 
Oldsmobile and Drive West. So it's kind of a road trip novel. But um, I think just on the sentence level and um, kind of like the structural um, aspects of the novel too, um, felt innovative. And um, it's just trying to like get underneath each thing it describes um, that kind of risks being hard to follow. Um, and not, that's not to say the novel is hard to follow, but I think it like takes risks in that direction. Um, and so for me, it really felt like a design novel. I feel, I feel like a lot of the stuff that they publish kind of is in that wheelhouse. So, yeah. Looking forward now that, I mean, though your book is still fresh. It was, it's, it's out two months ago. So you're in the throes of mm-hmm. like still talking to people like me and, and you're teaching and what, what are you looking forward to? in the future in 2020, are there ideas that are percolating and not necessarily what you're actually working on, but just like things that you might explore? I think I'm really excited. I haven't done as much writing as I normally would or would like to in these, you know, past like six months. And I think that's definitely to be expected with, you know, having a book come out. But um, I think, you know, the whole reason why I do this, I think um, is because like I'm in love with the process of writing. And so I'm really kind of eager to get back to, you know, what I, what I find most fulfilling. Um, But um, I think in my, uh, in my future, like writing or reading, um, I'm really trying to seek out uh, work that um, looks at kind of like intimacy and relationships um, and kind of like complicity within relationships and trying to get out kind of like, the oppressive structures that we've been given in relationships. So I've, I've been trying to read a lot kind of like in that direction. Um, and the expectation is that I might explore it in my writing, though I'm still just like dealing with a kind of trash heap of notes in my journal right now. <laughs> but um, that's kind of what I'm looking forward to exploring next year. Yeah. Are those subjects, intimacy and relationships, what you seek out in other books or where do you, where do you read that kind of not necessarily inspires you, but like influences you in some way? Um, yeah. I mean, late, lately it has been what I've been seeking out though. I, I try not to like compartmentalize my like reading habits, mm-hmm. you know, cause if I do that, like then I get just like sucked into one particular hole and I don't kind of read widely, but um, that's just kind of what I've been thinking about recently. Like I read, um, time is a thing a body moves through um, a little bit ago by T. Fleischman that kind of dealt in an essayistic way um, in like with those subjects um, there's a novel by Saskia Vogel uh, called Permission that I have not read but I'm, it's on my to be read pile um, that's, that seems to be dealing with those same issues too so um, yeah I think just at this particular moment I'm kind of I, I think with the last book, with Bloomland, I um, at times wrote from a kind of like more macrocosmic standpoint um, with regards to like kind of society. Um, and I think like in my next book, I think I'm just like more interested in kind of like um, dealing with subject matter that is like, um, I don't know, like more narrow or more towards like intimacy in the body and all those sorts of things, if that makes sense reading from a wide scope are there any other books that you read recently that may have come out or may may be coming out that stick out in in your mind yeah um so the 
my favorite book that I read in, in 2019 was probably Sketch to See by Matilda Bernstein Sycamore. Um, it came out by, uh, uh, from Arsenal Pulp Press. And um, it's about queer kids in the mid-90s, and they're kind of navigating, like, uh, addiction and trauma and the kind of, like, hostile world of Boston at the time. But um, what's crazy about the novel is that it's um, written in this really extreme, like, stream of consciousness associated voice. Um, so it's, like, really voice-driven. It doesn't really, like, rely on kind of, like, our traditional notions of plot. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way it works is that Alexa, the 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 narrator, is, like, this, this person who is really trying to, like, live outside oppressive gender norms and is trying to, like, create something like uh, like a safe community um, with their friends. And uh, I think they're met with a lot of resistance and hostility um, in their own community and in the kind of like general world of Boston. So that tension is kind of like on, on every page, if that makes sense. Um, and I don't know, reading that book um, really made me think about the ways in which like we have characters that sometimes are like overreaching or trying to like, you know, create a positive space. And that's where the tension comes from, as opposed to characters who are kind of like, um, we're like trying to like recreate the kind of like, I don't know, like oppressive reality. So like we end up with characters who are just being like, kind of like pushed down as opposed to characters who are like actively searching. So I've been thinking about that a lot recently. Um, and that's something that that book in particular kind of led me to. Um, so yeah, that book was amazing. Um, yeah. Yeah. That was, I, I remember I got, so I probably read it a, a while ago at this point before day beautiful, before I started day beautiful. And it was just, it's a mm-hmm. book that definitely stuck with me. Cause I think it came out like late, late, late yeah. 2018. And yeah. I lo it's one of those books where like I loaned it out to someone and they just definitely never gave it back, which I'm okay with because <laughs> um, maybe they loaned it to someone and more yeah. people are kind of reading it. It's, yeah. it's definitely an important book. <laughs> Is there anything, I guess you want readers to know if they do go into Bloomlands, I don't know, something to look for or kind of not what to expect, but what do you kind of hope readers take out of Bloomland? Yeah, no, definitely. It's a great question. I think in particular, it was really hard to kind of like write the jacket copy for the book. It was really hard to kind of think about the way in which I really wanted to pitch it just because it is about a really like, um, you know, divisive kind of like, um, you know, grim subject matter. Mm-hmm. And so um, my kind of take on that is that the the narrator of the entire novel is this person who kind of like feels responsible for the event. He's this professor who um, conference with the shooter days before the event. And like in telling the story, he's trying to like take responsibility and navigate his like anger and confusion. And I think that um, like that sentiment of shared responsibility is something that I hope suffuses the entire book. Um, I hope that the book is not some kind of like, finger wagging at people or finger wagging at society and more kind of like um, more kind of like a humble, you know, how are we contributing to this and what ways are we like kind of responsible for creating the person that did this, how far away from 
them are we really when we kind of get down to it i think that's like one thing i try to kind of like lead with sometimes when i'm talking about the book um because i think like people are are rightly very suspicious of it being kind of like um you know sensational or kind of like opportunistic because of its subject matter and i and my hope is that it's not so um yeah well, I, I thank you so much for talking to me. I, I do think Bloomland is important, and I'm so glad you wrote it and that Dezang published it. Um, congratulations on everything. Uh, I can't wait to read what, what comes from you next. Thanks. I appreciate it. Thank you so much to John Englehart for being one of the authors on this debut supersized episode of Day Beautiful, the podcast. You can follow him on Twitter at John Englehart one that's Inglehart, H-A-R-D-T-1. Again, I'll link his Twitter with all the other Twitter accounts of all the authors on this podcast in the show notes. Up next is Lauren Wilkinson, and I know she has a lot of accolades that she got for her novel, American Spy, but I keep focusing on the fact that Obama loves her book because I miss having a president that can read. So here's Lauren Wilkinson. There was uh, some audio issues with this one. I had really bad Wi-Fi where I was recording the call, so please forgive that. But I still want you to hear Lauren Wilkinson talk about her novel, Hollywood, and what's next. Thank you, Lauren, for joining us today. Um, How are you doing? I am great. Cool. Um, I'm in L.A., but it's a little overcast. But other than that, it's it's very nice. And, yeah, I want to talk about your move to L.A. and what you've been up to, but uh, can you first introduce American Spy to people who may not have read it when it first came out earlier this year? My first novel came out in February. It's called American Spy, and, that, um, and it is about a black woman who an FBI agent who is uh, asked, uh, she's put by the stay and asked to help undermine Thomas Sankar's Marxist government in Berlin. Yeah, what was so fascinating about it, and and what when I pitched it to my editor at Electric Literature about like why I love the book to like set up the interview, she was like, "Oh, I love that it's a spy novel that's subverting tropes and wholly original." Did you always? And I know we talked about this almost a year ago, but did you always kind of envision a spy, a literary spy thriller as your first book? No, um, I had no idea. Uh, even while I was writing it, I still wasn't sure that it was going to end up um, <laughs> being a, a spy novel. I was just, I was really, um, it was just that I was inspired by uh, a class I in graduate school about, um, it was actually about suburbia. And I wrote the book uh, in response to the prompt, which was just, you know, to write, write a short story that was, you know, set in suburbia, but didn't take, you know, didn't uh, use or reinforce any of the suburban cliches. And, um, you know, in that story, it just sort of stumbled on the, the idea that the main character was a spy, and I kept it going um, as, I, as I wrote the novel. And after the book came out... It definitely out, wasn't my intention. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, I remember talking about that and how... I remember that that prompt is what kind of propelled it with, like, the, the mother at the waking up with the intruder yeah um, yeah grad school you know mfa prompts work apparently yeah yeah me. and um <laughs> after the book came out there was a lot of crossover appeal because you know it's really literary very well written beautiful 
passages, but then it's also like you can push it as a as a thriller. What was the feedback you got from from readers when you went on book tour or like on Goodreads? What what did you see a lot of people gravitating towards in your book? Oh well, I have stayed far away from Goodreads. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's bad. It's bad for my my mental health. I think. Uh, I think honestly, the feedback that I get the most often is that people want to know if I'm going to write a sequel. Um, I think you know that for people who are like fully going into it, expecting just a thriller, uh, you know, I think it sort of challenges their expectations mm-hmm. a little bit. Um, but that's okay. <laughs> you know, that's I think that's kind of the value, you know, the joy of of, uh, of reading is to have your child, your expectations challenged. Definitely, that's what your book and then Julia Phillips' Disappearing Earth, which is. You know, some people are calling a mystery because it's about two missing girls. I think, you know, you can put those in the hands of people who might not read literary fiction and it really does challenge expectations. And I think that's what's important in literature today, like moving into 2020. It's not putting stories in boxes. Yeah, it feels like it in part, I didn't intend to be, but it certainly feels like uh, there's something happening now where there's a lot more crossover between literary fiction and other types of types of genre you know there was marlon james's book this mm-hmm. year uh which was and uh, yeah just a, a, a bunch i could think of so and julia's as you said yeah yeah and then your book got a lot of publicity when obama said he loved it um what was your initial reaction to when all that unfolded well i was actually at work <laughs> when that happened um on i was pretending that i was uh you know like paying attention <laughs> i was paying attention but then i got this a message uh that popped up on my computer from the woman who i one of the women i was subletting from at the time and she was like oh you probably already saw this on obama's uh summer reading list and i was like what why <laughs> <laughs> i hadn't seen it and it was also you know it was actually really surprising to me that uh you know that it came from someone in my life you know and not the news came from someone in my life and not like, you know, my editor or publicist or something. It was just someone who happened to see it on Facebook before I did. Um, and then, yeah, it was, it was really exciting. Uh, um, it was a really exciting for me. I told my, my coworkers and they were like, that is, that's, you know, that it was pretty cool. It was, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think I tweeted something like, Wow, it's really, really nice to remember, or you know, be reminded of having a president who who reads. <laughs> and I stand by that. You know, it, it, it did make me nostalgic for for someone who you know sees value in in literature and you know and in learning empathy through through books. So, yeah, definitely. Yeah, it was. It's always great to see what he's reading, and then not that like I. Maybe I am your biggest fan. I don't know. I, I just loved American Spy when it came out. And so I felt I, as a reader, felt validated. I'm like, damn, that's pretty cool. I, me and Obama could chill and read books together. My mom is like, so are you going to, like, get in touch with Obama? I'm like, say that again. Like, just, I'm like, no. No, I'm just not going to. Just slide into his DMs. I'm get in touch with people. him. Yeah. Uh, that's awesome. And then, I know. I, that would be 
dream for him to uh to follow me <laughs> yeah. but no that hasn't that hasn't happened Ugh. actually to uh yeah ranks isn't even gonna include that information that i was listed on my on the u.s version of the soft cover although the uk version they're putting it all over all over it oh really that's awesome because the uk loves obama <laughs> and are embarrassed by us right now um, <laughs> It's okay. We all are. Um, so last time I talked to you earlier in the year, your, your book was, uh, your book wasn't out actually. I talked to you in January so that we were, we were chatting before people knew American spy. Um, you were in New York, still living in Brooklyn, I believe. And now you're in LA. Mm -hmm. What, what brought you out West? Yeah. Well, um, in March, I got a phone call from a runner who invited me you know, I, I got the email from my agent on a Thursday, and I spoke to um, Josh, the showrunner, on Friday, and I was out here on a Monday, and I got a job um, staff writer on a spy show that is really, really different, like a much more action-packed, um, you know, thriller, kind of really fun, really awesome show. Um, that wrapped up, and then, like, a couple weeks later, I got offered a second uh, a second job on a, a second spy show, um, which is which I'm working on now, and it is awesome. Yeah, it's a lot of fun out here. I I never really thought of myself as living in LA, mm -hmm. um, but yeah. And, and I mean, actually, technically, I think of myself as like commuting to New York. Job. I'm in New York a lot. Uh, my boyfriend is there, so. Sure. <laughs> So it's just but, a long six-hour flight yeah. commute to work. Yeah, it makes sense to me. Um, how was how was <laughs> yeah, writing how was writing for these <laughs> yeah how was writing for these shows like change your perspective on writing or reinforced ideas you had about what writing what you could do with writing? Well, it's really it's just the fact that it's collaborative. Mm -hmm. You know, I spent seven years working on my novel, and I was by myself and in my pajamas for the vast majority of the time getting weirder and weirder, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like I had a real rear window energy. Um, but then, I don't know, this is so different. Like you, you go, sorry, there's a plane. Um, so yeah, just to reset, this is really, really different. I'm in a room uh, with a bunch of people and, um, you know, I, you get your ideas rejected more quickly, <laughs> yeah. you know, which is good, but also because, you know, I, when I was writing, I would spend two weeks on something that I realized when I was writing the novel, I would spend two weeks on something that wasn't going anywhere, but this, you know, you just pitch the idea and people are like, oh, that's not really working. And you're just like, okay. <laughs> so, um, yeah, yeah, that, that is really, really different. To me. And it's still a little bit of a challenge to figure out how to, you know, write with other people. Sure. And for people who don't know how writing rooms work, um, what was your role? Were you, you know, writing specifically for character, a certain character? Did you have episodes that you were working on? How did it work for you? Um, well, writing, I guess the one thing to know about writers rooms is that they're very hierarchical. Um, so it's the, the lowest level writer is a staff writer and that you go up, up, up until the showrunner. So right now, on the previous show, I was a staff writer, and now I'm the next level up, um, a story editor. Um, and what you do, or what I've done in these rooms, although I think that they vary, 
is that you spend the first few weeks kind of in a collaborative space in a room with the the whole room. You know, everyone has a different titles, but in the beginning, we're all kind of doing the same thing, which is just coming up with ideas for what the story uh, is going to be, you know, just on the smaller scale of the episode and of the larger scale of the course of the first season. And then um, you kind of break out and you, you write, um, you know, documents. So I guess you, first you, you write uh, an outline well, some or a story area. Um, and then you, and you know, you, you write the, the actual script. Um, so even though everyone has a different title and only, the lowest level writer actually has writer in their name. We're all just kind of um, doing the same thing. And um, yeah. And I think, you know, like, uh, I think traditionally maybe the difference was that people with like producer or story editor were more likely to be on set. Mm -hmm. um, but that's kind of changing with streaming. So I don't know. Sure. Yeah. Um, and also, I'm new, so <laughs> no, it makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> but it's, that's it's, my, been my experience so far. <laughs> yeah, it's it's always interesting. Um, before I like wrote a lot about literature, I would write a lot about television for a pop culture magazine, and you know, I visited sets and whatnot. And it's it's interesting to see how that side of the writing and production world exists when you are usually just in front of a TV on a couch seeing the finished product. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know. And so you're obviously working on a novel or you're working on something, I'm assuming, still in addition to the TV writing. Yeah. And we don't have to talk about it. Um, I just want to make sure like fans of American <laughs> Spy know you haven't left us for Hollywood permanently. Oh, uh, yeah, no. I, well, I've sold out a little. I've sold out a little. <laughs> um, not, not fully, but I, I am working on a, a, a novel, though. Cool. I've been... I don't know. I, it's not a spy novel. I would have been really interested in this idea for kind of a Western, actually. Uh, we'll see how far that goes. So, um, and then I've also, you know, I wrote also a treatment for um, uh, a show, you mm -hmm. know, just to kind of get that, that working too. Um, and that is with a friend. So mm -hmm. that has been a little bit more fun than just the alone, being alone and writing. Definitely, definitely. Um, well, I guess, so I've, I've been asking everyone for this supersized debut episode of this podcast, what they've been reading, but I'm going to ask you, since you're in Hollywood now, too, what have you been watching outside of what you've been working on? What what have you, what have, what, what has caught your eye on, on Netflix or streaming or whatever? Um, what have I been watching? I have, you know, it's weird. I haven't been watching that much mm. TV. Um, although I've been, I've been going to the movies a lot more. Um, I saw Hustlers, okay. saw Parasite. Um, yeah. And I loved, I loved both of them. Um, it was really, it was nice to just kind of go and, and see a movie that I was really, really, really liked. Parasite, I just have to say, yeah. I want to interject. I had no clue what it was about when I walked into it. I thought it was like a get out type movie. Um, yeah. and like whenever it was just amazing to watch and I can't believe you wrote it. It's just like when I, I thought it was going to zig, it zagged when I thought I was going to cry. It was a laughing scene. It was just, I couldn't believe that movie existed. I'm so happy to have seen it. I think everyone needs to see it. Yeah, it was amazing. I've also just to, you know, on the theme of 
walking into it and not knowing what to expect. Did you see those, like the Paris, the, the French posters where it yes. makes it seem like it's like a, a, a slapstick comedy? Yeah, it looks <laughs> like, like, yeah, it looks like a Steve Carell, really like an early Steve Carell role. Yeah, it's so funny. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, and then, so you're enjoying movies. Have you been reading any, any books or stories that have caught your eye in 2019 or maybe coming out in 2020? Um, yes. Well, I also wanted to answer the TV question. Oh, I, sure, sorry. I've been watching Succession, and people keep telling me that it's only a matter of time before I'm going to like it. <laughs> and I have to say, I'm a little bit of an outlier with Succession. I'm just like, why? I mean, people are despicable. Yeah, people I have... just say, keep telling me to get to the finale. Everyone keeps telling me, yeah, get to the second season. And I was like, all right, I'm, I'm yeah. slow burning it. I, I'll get there eventually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah but I'm, a, I'm an outlier uh, as well it's not it's good it's there i'm happy for them yeah yeah <laughs> yeah so and, um, i've given a bunch of i've a bunch of books so you know my really good friend is uh tommy pico he, he had a book of poetry his last i think in a, maybe a quartet of, of books called feed that um i recently read and enjoyed because it recently came out um you Will Never Be Forgotten, which are these weird, surreal, creepy short stories <laughs> um, that kind of, in this interesting way, deal with technology. Um, that's coming out in March. That is by Mary South. Mm. Um, a person whose book I was actually inspired, my book was, you know, I was inspired by, is Rosalie Neck. Mm. Um, she wrote Who is Vera Kelly? And then she's got a sequel to that coming out um, in 2020 called Vera Kelly is Not a Mystery. And she does something very interesting with that book. The first one was, it's more of a spy, literary spy book. And then the second one is the same character, but now it's more like uh, a a mystery detective story. So she kind of pivots in the genre and still keeps it literary. And I think, um, yeah, I, I think it's a, I really enjoyed it. So yeah, there's so many there's so many books though that I that I've like. Exactly. Uh, yeah, I'm surprised. I yeah, I thought I didn't read. I always feel like I don't read enough, but I guess I have read some books. <laughs> I, I'm excited yeah. about Rosalie's new book. I, I interviewed her for her first book and and loved it. And I did not know what the second book was going to be about. I knew she was working on the same character, so I'm really excited to hear she's refreshed and 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 taken something that we are familiar with and turning it on its head again. Yeah, it's cool. It has a lot of forward momentum, um, and I just really, really enjoyed it. I also really like the character. I just really like Vera. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's it's um, it's great, and I'm happy it's great. <laughs> awesome. Well, I know you have to get to work eventually, so thank you for taking the time to talk to me. Uh, go write Hollywood's next, you know, big thing. <laughs> I will do my best. (laughs) (laughs) I believe in you. Obama's going to love it. Whenever your show comes out or your movie, Obama's going to be like, yeah, all right, here we go. As long as I got Barry in my corner, right? (laughs) Uh, And you 100% do. So uh, thank you so much. Congratulations on an amazing year. Um, I can't wait to see what comes out in the future from you. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Lauren. Have a good one. All right. Bye. Bye.
again, thank you to Lauren Wilkinson, who on Twitter is Thrillkinson, which is probably one of my favorite author Twitter handles ever. Again, that's going to be in the show notes with Kimberly King Parsons, Melissa Rivero, and John Englehart's Twitter account. Thank you so much for listening to this debut episode of Day Beautiful, the podcast. And this was supersized. It'll shift to a monthly format in January where I'll have one guest per month. You can also check out more print interviews on daybeautiful.net. I have to thank my friends Panic Baby for letting me use their song, Don't. I'll be using it as the intro and extra and all the bumper music. And for this special debut episode, I'm going to just let the song play. Please check out daybeautiful.net and I'm available on all social medias at daybeautiful. Here's Panic Baby.